New Thinking Allowed, conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with parapsychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, we'll be exploring the anthropology of ghost hunting. My guest is Stephanie Yingling, who received her doctoral degree in anthropology from the University of Florida for an investigation of ghost hunting. The title of her dissertation begins with a quote, I am exposed not only to the paranormal, but the deepest secrets of individuals' lives and ethnography of Florida paranormal research teams. You will find a link to that dissertation in the description section of this video if you're interested. And now, I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Stephanie. It's a real pleasure to be with you today. Hi, thank you for having me. You have done some fascinating work as a parapsychologist. I've been aware of ghost hunters and sort of all these TV shows have been on the periphery of my awareness. But after I read your dissertation, it dawned on me this has become quite a significant social movement. When the TV shows first started becoming very popular in the early 2000s, we start seeing an explosion of ghost hunting groups forming, not only within the United States, um, but in other countries as well. And people were really drawn to this idea, I think, of being able to interact with the spiritual and the paranormal on a more personal basis. A lot of people's see ghost hunting as a thrilling or fun activity. And for the most part, some of the TV shows portray it that way. But there's another element to it as well, which is a very meaningful element. There's a lot of other factors involved that are spiritual. Some people are looking for resolution. Some people are looking for, you know, their own spiritual answers. Um, for other people, it's the community of ghost hunters that they are really drawn to. So when it comes to the television shows, the medium has played a huge factor in the popularity of ghost hunting groups. Um, but it's much more than just as entertainment. I know around the world, there are maybe three, 400 people who are members of the parapsychological association who investigate these sorts of things. But I, I have to think that there are thousands, maybe tens of thousands of people engaged in ghost hunting at this point. Yes. And the numbers, you know, change from year to year. But if you were to go onto the internet and do a search for paranormal teams within your town, um, you're pretty much guaranteed to find at least one, right, within an hour of you, um, if not several dozen. So uh, a good way to get a measure of how many people are engaged in these groups right now is to look at their websites, because most of them will have some sort of functioning website with a way to get in contact with them because they want to be able to reach out to people who either have questions or who want to say, hey, is there something going on with my house? So most of these groups are creating website and are very visible, you know, in a digital way. One of the things that intrigued me about 
your work is that they're not in it for the money. They typically don't charge for, uh, for their investigations. In fact, they do a lot of investigations just to train their own people. On the other hand, some of these groups offer tours. Uh, and it's become part of the tourist industry as well. Yes. So a lot of the groups offer tours in their own cities as a way to not only learn themselves more about their local history, but to share that knowledge uh, with others, knowledge of local history, knowledge about ghost hunting tools. It's a way to interact with the public. And some of them will charge, you know, a lot of them charge money for these tours as part of the revenue. Um, so most of these paranormal teams do not charge for investigations. They see it as unethical to be charging for investigations when they're doing these investigations in the homes of private residences, right? They don't think it's very ethical to charge for that. Um, there are other forms of investigations where they'll go to public locations, such as you know, the sanatoriums or haunted hospitals. And in those cases, they may actually pay to get into those locations. So there is a big tourist industry, not just for the general public to go on ghost tours, but also for paranormal investigators to investigate other places as well is also another type of, you know, paranormal tourism. Um, it is an expensive hobby, right? Since most ghost hunting teams do not make money off of ghost hunting. Um, if anything, it's a very costly <laughs> and expensive hobby to have, but one that they do with a passion. Now, I understand that oftentimes people who own old and dilapidated properties actually generate revenue by offering or leasing or selling, uh, renting uh, space in those properties to ghost hunters to, to spend uh, overnight time there. That's actually become a source of revenue for people who own abandoned hospitals and jails and the like. Yeah, so I find that really fascinating, actually, because a lot of historical buildings have found their way into this niche of being able to kind of tap into that source of revenue from ghost hunting groups. Um, most of the time, it's a building that already has a reputation, somewhat, of being haunted or at least being old, you know, old enough to have some uh, haunted atmosphere about it. And so what they do is they build up this reputation and notoriety as being a haunted location and inviting ghost hunting groups to come in for a fee. And a lot of that revenue goes back into restoring the historical buildings most of the time. And there's a couple really wonderful examples of this um, that I was able to investigate at here in Florida. There is a few in Tampa and in Gainesville area where it was a, you know, a historical building and it's, very difficult for them to get enough funding to keep up with the building. So it's been a really um, clever way for them to to do that. I know you wrote about being in, a, in an abandoned hospital and there were actually, as I recall, three different groups of ghost hunters uh, who had uh, rented the uh, hospital for the weekend to explore it and, and largely for the purpose of training their own members. Yes. So in this one particular hospital, it was large enough that there was enough space for, you know, a couple dozen people to spend a few nights there. So the way the owners of the hospital had it set up was they had one wing of the hospital with 
bed set up, you know, bedding and power and water um, so that the groups could come in and get settled. And they would actually be there for the weekend. They'd be there for two nights, um, you know, with keys to the building so they could get in and out as needed. But it was basically like a camping trip almost for ghost hunters, you know, a way to get training for new members or just have some ex- more experience if you are already a experienced member. And with the training, because they see these, what we were calling public investigations, right? Because it's not a residence. So if it's not a residence, it was typically called a public investigation. And those were sometimes used as training for new members because not as much responsibility was tied up with that investigation as there is when you do a private residence for a client. So it was a little bit more laid back. You had time to test out new equipment, learn some new techniques, be able to interact with other members of the group in a more relaxed setting. Now, you were a graduate student in anthropology when you made the decision to write your dissertation on uh, these ghost hunting groups. What, What was it that prompted you to do that? As I was deciding what to do my dissertation on, I was I had just completed my master's in archaeology, actually, and I wanted the chance to explore a topic that I'd always been fascinated by, and I'd always loved topics like mythology and folklore, and I had noticed this increasing popularity of the paranormal shows on television. So after some research and realizing that other anthropologists were studying this topic as well, this topic of right, urban folklore, urban myths, you know, paranormal topics. I really wanted to focus my research as a cultural anthropologist on paranormal groups in Florida. You know, ones that I had easier access to, I didn't involve as much travel and funding to go somewhere else. And so I was able to spend an extended amount of time working with several paranormal groups in Florida, going on several dozen investigations with them, able to see how they investigated and worked with one another in various settings, including private investigations where you're working with clients in their homes, public investigations uh, like those hospitals and historical buildings, um, and then other settings such as paranormal conferences and community gatherings that they would have with multiple paranormal groups from across the state, which was a very interesting um, scenario to see these groups actually coordinating with each other and working together, you know, having a common goal and networking. So it's more than just these isolated groups, you know, doing their thing in different cities. There's actually, in some of these cases, wide networks where people are actually trying to work together for a common cause. I'm under the impression that Many people who are ghost hunters are also regular viewers of New Thinking Aloud. Occasionally, they they write to me and, and tell me, you know, they're aspiring to become more professional in their work. And I gather that when you surveyed members of the different groups that you found that they engage in ghost hunting for a variety of motives. So one of the first things I did as a researcher when I joined the group, 
I made sure all of the group members knew that I was a student and this is what I was researching, um, but that I also wanted to do this research in a very engaging way. I didn't want to just go in and ask questions. I wanted to join the group as a ghost hunter and actually get the full experience to be able to really fully understand the experiences that they were having and how they were gaining meaning from them. And one of the first things I asked people in a survey was, you know, how did you get into ghost hunting? What made you join this group? What led you to this? And there are some common answers. Um, but I think the top two answers I had were they either wanted to help people or they were interested in um, gaining new knowledge about the paranormal, like bringing the knowledge to the scientific community. And so there are these very kind of noble reasons for joining a lot of a frequent answer I received from paranormal uh, group members was that they knew what it was like to be in their own home and to be frightened. And when they called on a group to help them and they were able to help them, whether it was through debunking it or providing some sort of closure or clarity, what was happening, um, that they wanted to provide the same type of help for others. Right? And this goes for both living and spiritual beings as well. Um, a lot of them want to help the spiritual beings that they are interacting with. So for some people, they first learned about the groups, you know, either through finding websites or watching the television shows um, and became interested. But what really pushed them into joining a paranormal group and actively investigating was either some sort of personal experience that they had before um, or this idea of wanting to conduct these investigations and contribute more findings and data and knowledge to this collective understanding of what the paranormal is. Now, I, I gather from your dissertation that the groups are typically small in number and they typically are centered around individuals who are the founders of these groups and that these individuals often have their own philosophy. Sometimes it's very scientific, sometimes it's very religious, but the philosophy of the leader seems to color the approach of the group as a whole. So the group dynamics change from group to group. And most of the time, because these are not businesses, right? They're run by individuals who are running these groups as a hobby. Um, they tend to be structured around either one person or a couple who are the founding, the founders of the group. And they're the ones who tend to buy the most equipment, set up kind of the home base for where the group will have their meetings, where they should go. Um, and so they are the ones who tend to be in charge and make the most decisions because they are the ones contributing the most to the group. The way that they recruit other members um, is sometimes through online, you know, reaching out to friends that they know or other people in their town will find their website and reach out and, They'll try to find a few people who are also interested in working with them. And it can be very difficult to coordinate a group when you have very different people and motives for doing paranormal research. Um, so for these groups, they can change members either frequently or maybe they have a several long-term members who have been doing this for decades. In my experience, I found that there are usually most of them were 
seasoned veterans of the paranormal, but you did have some turnover of people becoming engaged in the group and then having to not participate anymore, either due to uh, issues with funding, right? It is an expensive hobby to be able to afford to go on multiple investigations to buy the equipment. Um, It's also very time consuming. Um, So people who were either starting a family or starting a new job couldn't commit as much time to it either. Uh, So you did come across different abilities of being able to participate in the group, but also different philosophies for what the group was doing. Like you said, you could have different philosophies about the scientific nature of the paranormal or the spiritual aspect of it. For the most part, the founders and the group members tend to be very open, but you can get some tensions within the group when you have different interpretations of what is happening on an investigation. And I came across that a few times. And what I found really significant about those differing interpretations is that it really shows how these group members are getting meaning out of the extraordinary experiences that they are having. For someone who is interpreting uh, an extraordinary experience as spiritual, like if their equipment is being activated and giving some kind of anomaly, they may interpret that as a personal communication. Right, it's anonymous. You know, they feel they know who they are connecting to, and they're getting a really profound meaning out of that. Whereas, if another group member is more of a technical philosophy and is more scientific-minded, they may be more skeptical. And so, when that skepticism, right, confronts that spiritual interpretation, you get some tensions there. And I saw that tension quite a bit, but for the most part, group members tend to be very respectful with each other. One thing I was always impressed with was the way that group members and these different paranormal groups I worked with, the way that they were respectful and ethical, which was really surprising and also really um, inspiring as well, that they often had a code of ethics that they worked with to balance out both the spiritual and the scientific and skeptical sides, you know, when approaching these extraordinary experiences. Now, I know you finished your dissertation several years ago. Have you remained active in the ghost hunting community since then? I have not. I am one of those people who did end up having conflicts with time. I started a family and moved out of town since then. So I, you know, understand that When personal life and career and things come up, it can be very difficult to keep up with paranormal research. It is a huge time commitment. I have a lot of respect for the people who are able to dedicate hours every weekend reviewing audio files. When I was active in the group, you would spend several hours a week. If you were doing investigations, um, even twice a month or once a month, you would have to dedicate several hours for reviewing audio files you know, and that's just as a group member, as a founder, that's even more time planning the investigation, you know, doing research. If you're the researcher and you want to look up, you know, local history. Um, so it is quite a commitment. 
Now, one of the intriguing aspects that you wrote about was electronic voice phenomenon, where you, you go in with tape recorders and or other audio recording equipment these days. Tape recorders are getting old fashioned, but you you were making audio recordings so that in in the event that you don't notice anything while you're actually there presently, uh, and you may spend overnight hours and hours at a at a location then you review the audio tapes afterwards hours and hours to see if anything anomalous perhaps a voice showed up on the audio so one of the primary pieces of evidence that a lot of ghost hunters try to obtain right is the evp the electronic voice phenomenon this idea that these spiritual beings that you know the group is trying to connect with can communicate on some other frequency that humans can't hear but for some reason the electronic equipment can pick it up and so that idea of evps being possible also helps frame how most of the investigations are conducted so when you go into a location and you set up where most of your equipment is going to be when you go through room to room, you would stop in each room and let it be quiet and then ask questions, but give enough time between questions to allow for any type of possible answers that even if you can't hear them at the time that you're asking them, it's possible they show up on the recorder later. And I know many ghost hunters who, you know, said that they had success with this type of approach um, in varying degrees of clarity, right? Whether it was a muffled sound or some kind of noise that even if it doesn't sound like a word, it's not something they heard in the room at that time, which makes it anomalous, you know, at the very least, um, to a response, you know, that could sound like a response to the question. The audio is also very useful for, you know, picking up other types of noises that you might hear at the time as well. I'm aware that in addition to the use of EVP for ghost hunting purposes, there's a whole other community, a very large community of people who are into either EVP or it's sometimes called ITC, instrumental trans communication. Typically, these are people who have lost loved ones or friends or relatives, and they just turn the equipment on in their own home and believe that they are receiving voice communications over that equipment from uh, deceased individuals. I, I believe there are tens of thousands of people in that community, and it's related to but completely separate from the ghost hunters. Yeah, so in terms of approaches and with that motive of wanting to communicate right with these non-corporeal beings, that is a completely different approach to that, but it seems like the goal is ultimately the same, right? To get some sort of communication and evidence and proof, right? That there is some sort of paranormal or spiritual presence um, that is not only present, but also intelligent enough to communicate directly with, with living people. And I imagine most of the equipment is similar because in addition to the voice recorders that paranormal researchers use. There's also 
a plethora of other gadgets, including um, like spirit boxes or voice boxes that flip through radio stations very quickly. And those are often used on investigations and other types of devices that take measurements and sense the environment for all sorts of changes. And one of the differences here might be with this other equipment, it's taking environmental measures and looking for anomalies in the way that that environment changes. And the other ITC communication devices, um, I'm not too familiar with them, but if they're looking for just the audio, right, it might be interesting if they were to incorporate some of these other environmental measurement devices. Yeah, to my knowledge, there's a wide range of equipment that these people use, including video. I've even heard of images appearing on video screens when when the equipment is not even plugged in. Uh, but that's another story. And uh, let, but you do report on a fascinating instance in which you encountered a fellow who had one of these voice box scanners scanning the radio signals. And as you walked up to meet him, he he said, uh, "Let's test it out." And he spoke into the scanner and he said, "What's her name?" And right away, a voice said, "Stephanie." Yes, I remember that instance, and um. It's one of those moments where, as a, a researcher and a scientist, I'm not sure what to make of it, but I'll tell you that it's an anomaly, for sure. It's an extraordinary experience, and it's exactly the reason why I joined the ghost hunting teams, to be a member, because as a researcher looking in from the outside, I would have never had that experience to really understand what a paranormal researcher means when they say that they have these profound, right, profound, impactful experiences with these extraordinary beings, right, with these devices, or whether it's something physical, like they feel like they're being touched when they're in a room. And that experience I would count as one of my extraordinary experiences, but I'll also say that I won't claim to know how it happened or who it was or what was going on. But I will say that I had other people hear it too. So the methods of validation are also something that paranormal researchers try to do as well. They always try to validate the experience that they're having by asking other people if they heard the noise as well, by trying to pick it up on different types of recording devices. So if I had had a voice recorder in my hand at that time, that would have been really helpful for proving that this happened. But I didn't, of course. Well, you do report that in the anthropology literature around ghost hunting, and there have been a number of dissertations and papers at this point, there's been a lot of uh, criticism that the methods are, I guess you would say, quasi-scientific, that they use various pieces of equipment, but some of the investigators of the ghost hunting community feel that the approaches aren't really scientific. Maybe another way to put it, Stephanie, is that, I, to my knowledge, the ghost hunting community doesn't have professional journals where papers are presented in a scientific sense and critiqued the way, for example, it's done in anthropology. So the ghost hunting community has faced some skepticism, right, and barriers to the to the scientific community. Um, but I, 
kind of goes both ways as well. A lot of times these everyday people who are in ghost hunting groups as a hobby, they don't have access to scientific literature and articles that are behind a paywall. So a lot of times they do feel left out from the scientific community. And at the same time, they do want to engage in research and collect data and be able to share it with others. But they don't really have an outlet for doing that. And there's been some attempts um, by various groups and individuals to create website databases where they invite people to send in their audio and their video. But there isn't a standard for the quality there. There's been certain categorizations for like the quality of an EVP on how clear it is. But there's not a definitive way to kind of prove the reliability of these pieces of evidence. So that's one thing that the paranormal community is, I would say, struggling with if they're looking for that type of respect and credibility from the scientific community. One of the other interesting things that you report on are gender distinctions, that males tend to assume more of a, a technical role with the equipment, and women tend to gravitate more towards uh, sensations they feel in their own body, maybe uh, also a, a certain amount of psychic sensitivity. And I know there's a controversy in the ghost hunting groups of whether or not to employ psychic people and spiritual people on these investigations? So one thing I noticed while doing an investigation, it was when we were in the hospital and we had a couple different groups investigating together. So we had enough people to do kind of a joint investigation. And something I noticed uh, during one of our EVP sessions was when we all went up to the third floor, all of the men grabbed their cameras and audio devices, and they were patrolling the halls while all the women grabbed the lab coats and the wheelchairs, and they went into one of the rooms to imitate a checkup scenario with this idea that by recreating a scene familiar to the hospital, they could engage more of the spirits at the location. And I found that distinction very interesting, right, because it does follow along with these traditional gender roles that we have in Western culture, the idea that men are more uh, scientific and objective and women being more emotional and personal. Um, but it isn't a rule. You know, it's not like every group follows that. And sometimes it may switch from investigation to investigation. But I did find that in most of the groups that I worked with, the tech experts tended to be some of the men. Um, and for the most part, uh, the women were the case managers, right? The ones reaching out and coordinating the investigations. Um, when it came to those claiming to be um, intuitive or have psychic abilities, um, it was almost 50-50 with all when I did a survey of all of the groups earlier on. Um, but women seemed to be more comfortable with sharing those sensations that they were having, those physical or emotional sensations during an investigation. And I think it does tie back to some of these gender expectations that we have in our American society that men shouldn't be as emotional. Um, and I think there may be some shifts, you know, I think there's a lot of shifts happening in our current society and culture 
about how these expectations maybe should be changing, right? To be embracing more of the emotional with both genders. Um, you know, I did encounter uh, men who said they were psychic and would use those psychic abilities during investigations as well. So like I said, it wasn't in every case, but it, it's always interesting to see some of those gender roles and stereotypes actually playing out in some scenarios. And it's not necessarily a fully negative thing. Um, it's just interesting to see it, to see it happen. Um, but one thing was the, one of the men in one of the groups had this contraption where he had his video camera with the IR, the infrared light up top and some other cameras on the side and this big thing, he, um, he called the masculinity 3000. So if that's not an indication <laughs> of that relationship between technology and, and gender. <laughs> One of the most fascinating aspects of your dissertation is your account of a case in which the group that you were involved with decided to bring in a demonologist or a team of what, what are called demonologists, although that was never defined very clearly. But it, it seemed to be that you were investigating a case that was quite traumatic for the uh, householder involved, and, and you felt that a, an outside expert was uh, required. And apparently, these demonologists, whoever they were, seemed to perform a useful function. Yes. So, that was a very complex case. And that one, as a researcher, I had to come to um, you know a conclusion with myself ethically to be participating in this. And one thing that I felt really strongly about was you know that the group was going to move forward in an ethical way when doing private investigations. Something that I was keeping an eye out for to make sure that I wasn't crossing any boundaries as a researcher. But what I was uh, what I found really impressive was that the group leader was able to recognize at a point, hey, this client, what she's saying, um, you know, this seems to be out of our expertise. This is not something we typically handle. If she's describing these kind of demonic interactions, I don't think that's something that we can take on and resolve on our own. And he had some connections and ended up contacting a demonologist who was able to come down and it was not an exorcism it was a deliverance right so from my understanding it was kind of like this lower level of that and you know she went through this process with him and from my understanding it seemed to have been successful where after this event this deliverance she didn't report any further kind of demonic, really quite terrifying encounters from what she was telling us, but that after that, her life improved and she wasn't having any more of that paranormal activity. So the sign of a very responsible and ethical paranormal group is also to know what you can handle and what you can't handle, right? What you should and shouldn't do. Um, there are also guidelines within my group's um, kind of like a member manual of knowing how to act ethically when on an investigation, right? If a client is, and this is in the case of right private residences, working with people directly, 
if someone is showing signs of right abuse or if there's something else going on that is you know straying into maybe more legal matters knowing when to step back and call the right authority for that um which can be a really you know gray area of knowing well when do you you know either call the police or call child services you know when do you make that call but i think it's important for groups to understand that if they see, you know, maybe there should be more training involved where if they see things like that, that are questionable or troubling, right, that they know what they're experts in and what they are not experts in. Well, in, in this particular case where the demonologists were called in, you described the process uh, that they went through. You weren't there for the whole thing. They told you at one point you had to leave, but uh, they began by doing what seemed like a very standard psychiatric interview of uh, this householder, this lady, uh, and she described a horrendous background full of all kinds of uh, uh, abuse. Uh, I think you even mentioned rape and uh it, it raises the question, of course, of to what extent is she experiencing demonic possession? To what extent is it, are these psychiatric symptoms? To what extent do they overlap? But in any case, the, the demonologists had a, a Christian background. They felt that uh, whatever was going on, they, they knew what to do. Uh, but because... Uh, they described you as a person who didn't have that background, not being a Christian like they were, that you needed to leave during the actual process of deliverance after they had conducted their, um, I will call it a psychiatric inventory. Uh, then they went through a process of expelling the uh, what they assume were demonic entities, and they wanted you to leave to make sure that uh, these entities didn't jump out of that lady and into you. Yeah, so before they got started, I was approached by the demonologists and asked about my beliefs. And even though I wanted to be present right as a researcher, I was honest and said, no, I won't be able to you know, uh, agree to what you're saying. And so I had to be outside of the building, um, but still with some, I was able to hear what was going on and kind of keep an eye on it because I was also concerned for the client. I wanted to make sure everything was going okay inside. Um, but there is this idea of spiritual protection that not only the demonologists have, but a lot of ghost hunters do as well. So it was good to know that they were concerned right, about keeping us all spiritually protected in that scene, that it wasn't gone in and done in a haphazard manner or done recklessly. They were very concerned about, you know, their boundaries and protecting everyone involved. And as I recall, they, they had, after the lengthy questions about her background, they had made a big list of, of negative words that she had expressed. And for each of those words, they tried to banish that from her mind and her thoughts. And uh, sometimes she, she would make noises or burps or uh, moans, I suppose. And, and that they acknowledged that each of those sounds meant that a, a particular entity was leaving her. Yeah, so that process was really interesting, and one way that I would explain the reasoning behind that is by looking at the connection between the spiritual and the physical. This idea that you can 
engage in some symbolic acts, you know, even if it's something as simple as like, you know, burping or coughing, right? You're casting, you know, your breath out. And if you can tie that symbolically to this spiritual presence, um, I think it carries a lot of weight, right? And as a researcher, I'll say that I'm not sure why this deliverance was successful, you know, but I know that it was. And maybe it was some combination of psychological shifting, right, that was going on. But I think that's very closely tied to, right, these spiritual beliefs and what they believe was going on. So I think a lot of this is tied together. I don't think it's something that, you know, a scientist could say, oh, it's only psychological or it's only, you know, this or that. One thing that I think a lot of these authors miss, right, the ones that I was reviewing before doing this research, is that a lot of this seems to be very closely tied together, and I don't think you can untangle them. Well, I have to say, I don't think that there are many psychologists or psychiatrists who who can affect such a dramatic and rapid healing as the one you report in your dissertation. There are some examples of uh, people like uh, Milton Erickson, who's known for miraculous uh, hypnotherapy, for example. But for the most part, uh, these kinds of dramatic, sudden healings don't occur in the uh, psychological or psychiatric setting. Right. I would say that this was a very rare and unique experience that the group had. I don't think this is something that many paranormal research groups ever experience. And, you know, I felt very lucky to have been able to see this type of process because it is a different approach to dealing with a paranormal problem. One of the things that I was interested in as a researcher was seeing how people see these right extraordinary experiences some of them see them as problems right especially if it's in your home it's a problem <laughs> for most people and there are different ways that people go about solving these paranormal problems right if you go in as a psychic and say a psychic goes in and does a blessing of the house or if a priest goes in and does a blessing or if ghost hunters go in and do an investigation these are all different ways of trying to solve a paranormal problem, right? And I think that is really interesting how you can have a combination of methods and different ideas on how to approach it. And, and in this case with the deliverance, frankly, I wasn't really concerned with how it worked or why it worked, but just glad that it did for whatever reason for her. I gather you actually in the in this investigation, which lasted a number of weeks, both before the deliverance and afterwards, you you got to be rather close to this individual. I had spoken with her several times throughout those weeks, and one of the things that I find really meaningful as a paranormal group member is you're often told things by people that they haven't told anybody else. And that is, you know, sometimes a really almost a heavy burden sometimes, especially if it's really personal information. And in this case, I found it really meaningful that she was willing to share these really traumatic and terrifying experiences with us because it's not something she could necessarily share with 
some of her friends or some of her family because it's, you know, these terrifying, you know, it's not something that most people would believe, right? So when people have some of these extraordinary experiences that seem unbelievable, if they feel like they can't share this with the people they love the most, that can lead to a really, you know, right, emotionally upset, um, you know, state that they're in. And so a lot of times these ghost hunting groups come in and they fill that role of almost being a counselor sometimes of like, we're here, you can talk to us, you can tell us anything, like we've heard crazier, we promise. So (laughs) one of the most meaningful roles of these paranormal groups, I would say, is that is that ability, is that they can go in and be the ones who listen. And even if they can't solve that paranormal problem, they're at least there to listen. And sometimes that's enough. Well, Stephanie, this has been a fascinating conversation. You certainly have left me with the impression that after years of investigating these ghost hunting groups, your overall impression is that uh, they're performing a positive service to society and a beneficial service to themselves. Absolutely. One of the one of my final conclusions in my dissertation is that these groups fill a role in society. And although I think there could be room for improvement, like we've talked about with maybe some of the ways that they could collect data or have access to more of these scientific articles, they are definitely fulfilling this role. You know, that counselor role for some, they're creating communities for people to be able to get together and express some of these ideas and share these experiences they've had with each other that maybe they haven't been able to share with anyone else. And especially for those who joined a group maybe after losing someone they love, you know, and they're still looking for answers and they're finally able to kind of join a group of like-minded people who, you know, can help them search for those answers that they're looking for in a spiritual sense. You know, it provides that outlet for trying to right, push the boundary of what these devices can measure, right? A lot of times they're adapting these tools to measure things they weren't necessarily meant to measure, but it's creating some really interesting results. So this overlap between technology, science, religion, right, community dynamics, um, uh, the ways that these groups sometimes interact with the public is really interesting. Uh, Several of the groups that I worked with did a few fundraisers for cancer patients. So this community is also a way for them to get together and give back to the, the public as well. So I think these groups have a very important role to play, and I'd be interested to see how they continue over the next few years and how they develop and change. And hopefully maybe there's a way that we can you know, give them a place in the scientific community for some of this data collection in a way that will be more credible and standardized, um, that'll help them gather more of this information. But on the other hand, I don't think all of their work has to be scientific. I think it is almost more like a sociology that they could be engaging in, right? Because if they're communicating with spiritual beings or deceased beings, if they believe they're talking with the dead, um, right? That's almost like a form of sociology or counseling. So maybe they're not 
maybe they don't need to be scientists all the time. And maybe that means there should be a different type of training they go through to be those types of paranormal counselors. Right. So I think there's a lot of directions this field could go in, and I would be very excited to see how it develops. Well, Stephanie Yingling, this has been a marvelous conversation. Congratulations on the work that you have done in anthropology. I think uh, your dissertation is something of a landmark, and uh, I look forward to uh, learning more about uh, ghost hunting now that you've opened up the subject for me. Thank you so much for being with me. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And for those of you watching or listening, thank you for being with us.